welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the ways we can better navigate our very many differences and disagreements, and the people behind the positions who shape our common life. Every episode, I speak to someone with some kind of public voice or platform, basically someone who other people listen to. And I try and dig in to what is sacred to them, by which I mean, what principles are they trying to live by? I try and listen in a curious and non-adversarial way, seeking to understand, understand them, understand their story, um, seeking to understand how they think about how they use their voice and the responsibility of that, and, and really how they've ended up where they are today. I'm interested in people of all beliefs and identities and postures. And if you listen long enough, you should hear people you really relate to and feel really aligned to. And you should also hear people who you really do not. Part of the point is to challenge our conceptions um, of people who are not like us. You can think of this uh, podcast, if you like, as a sort of antidote to the rest of your content consumption, which will, for almost all of us, be playing voices back at us, which we already agree with, who we already feel um, some similarity and some affinity with. And in listening more broadly, I hope to expand my own capacity for empathy and curiosity to challenge my own very deeply held uh, tribalisms, which I hope we all have. Um, and really just to get out of that bubble. One of our former guests, Eli Pariser, was the person who came up with that name Filter Bubble. I want to break out of the tiny world that if I'm not careful, I can end up locked in and understand more of the people outside it in all their um, fascinating and, and beautiful polyphonic diversity. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Audrey Assad. Audrey is an American Syrian singer, songwriter. She's the first musician that we've had on in, um, in a really long time. And for most of her career, she was known, um, known well in the contemporary Christian music scene. Although as we hear, that is complicated. We spoke about her childhood in the Plymouth Brethren. We spoke about what draws her to music, what role it plays in her life, her very public deconstruction, and we will unpack that term a bit for those of you not familiar with it, and what she believes now. And I really hope you enjoy listening. Audrey, we're going to attempt to go deep fast, which is not always easy on uh, digital platforms and with people that we don't know well, but I hope worth the effort. Um, <laughs> and before I get to what is sacred to you, I'd love to know how you feel about the word? How, what, how does it resonate to you? What's its texture? Is it off-putting? Is it mm. on-putting? You see what I'm asking. <laughs> yes. Mm. Oh, I, I have been um, on a journey with this word. And so at the moment, it does feel extremely pleasurable for me to think about it. It's like, a, I think of it as like, um, signifying the, the highest of intimacy with something or someone hmm. or, you know, and so when I feel into the word, I, I feel memories come from my childhood and I feel imaginings, you know, come from the future, you know, things that I, I don't know. It, it is a very pleasurable and inspiring word to me. So I was really excited to receive this invitation. And having sat with it a little bit, what bubbled up as something that might be sacred to you? So <clears throat> the first thing and the, the largest 
the like the biggest um, one was my body. That that was number one that came forward. Should I give you the overview, the list, and then we'll go into each one, or should I say <laughs> however it comes up? <laughs> okay. So okay, I'd like to list them. So I didn't find very many, but there are a few. And one is my body, and two is other people's bodies. So bodies, you know, maybe that's one. Um, nature, my relationship to nature and the earth is another. And then my role as a mother is a, is a big one. Uh, my role as a mother and having children and the, 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 what that entails. And then the, the fourth one, I mean, it's like they all bleed together, but music and creativity and like the erotic life force in each of us that, that plays in that. And then, you know, my relationship with my partner is, is on the list as well. So those were what, that was what I came up with. And there are more things that I hold as values than that. You know, those are not even really values. They're more like areas of life, uh, relationships that I have. And so I have, I have principles, but I don't have very strong beliefs. And so I, I try to go back to these things when I, when something is in question and I need guidance and clarity, these are the places I return to consult. And so that is why they are the sacred places for me. Tell me a little bit more about body. You're the first person in five years who's said that one. And I'm always interested in when something sort of peaks up above the clustering of sacred Mm. values that we've heard. That is fascinating. I could talk about, I could think about that all day. Um, The fact that no one has ever said that on this end of month's podcast, that's fascinating. Um, not surprising to me either because it's new for me and I'm going to be 40 in July and I'm just getting here, you know, so I'm not surprised. Um, these days I, if I'm feeling confused or flooded in my nervous system, let's say by something, a situation, a stressor, a trigger, a a sadness, like whatever, you know, a big feeling of some kind, I'm learning these tools to help me navigate that confusion that don't really involve thinking my way out of it. Um, Because I, so what drove me here, I think, is that I was diagnosed with OCD in 2016. And the type of quote unquote pure O OCD, where it's all up here in the mind, I didn't have physical routines as much. It was all sort of thought loops then like self-inflicted suffering through these mental rabbit holes and mazes that I would put up for myself. And um, especially around conscience and religion and God and, and that sort of thing. And so that's known as scrupulosity. It's a condition known as scrupulosity. And I was a therapist that I was seeing a trauma therapist said, I think you have this this might explain some of your angst around all of this. Cause I was going in with, I was having panic attacks, walking into any church building or space. I was have, I could, I had to cancel a whole season of shows because I could not go into the churches. It was giving me so much anxiety. And there's so much to that story that would take the whole hour to tell. But I think it suffices to say that I was feeling, um, 
like I had, I had hit some kind of limit and I didn't even really know about what. And so because I have this condition of monkey mind, extreme kind of, you know, at the time, a tormenting kind of mental space in this way of trying to think my way through this problem, I had to go into the body to, to heal and solve and to soothe. And I had never done that. I'd always been in talk therapy, which was helpful, but it hadn't really alleviated my actual symptoms. And the same therapist said, I believe you have CPTSD, which is chronic post-traumatic stress disorder, meaning no one main event, but many, many small events contributing to symptoms consistent with PTSD. So I'm like, what is going on? I don't know. I've talked about everything. I've talked about my family problems. I've, I've dug into all this, you know, what am I doing wrong? What am I missing? And it was all embodiment that I really needed to reach some healing and some peace in those places. And so that was what started me on my journey towards it was a therapist who was a Christian, by the way, and is, um, and I had come in and was, I, I was like, I can't even say the word God. I can't even say it. It sends me into a panic. So she said, okay, we'll go with higher power if that works for you. So I said, I think, yes, I think I can do that. You know? And so we go through this whole journey together over 10 months. And that's what, that's what brought me into my body as, a, as, as another locus of divine wisdom and intelligence. There's so much that I'd love to unpack there, and I hope that we will, but I want to wind back a little bit first and just hear the beginnings of that story, maybe. Could you tell me a little bit about your childhood and in particular, any big ideas that were in the air, religious, political, philosophical, that were formative for you? Yeah, um, I really found it interesting thinking through this question because what I found, I'll give you my thesis first and then I'll back up, but what I found was there are things that I was sort of not just taught, but indoctrinated with, I would say. And I think that's actually the term we would also have used. (laughs) So (laughs) this is not an accusation of anything. It's just sort of a statement of the way we thought about the truth, you know, and beliefs and what they meant and how to impart them. You know, we're studying charts of dispensational post-apocalyptic future and learning the, you know, the scripture in large, large passages, just very much like this is the world I'm in. This is the water I drink. You know, this is the air I breathe. And there are things that I was taught that I do not believe now. I do believe something different or I feel another way. And yet I am still so formed by those things that I have an inner conflict with myself (laughs) over so many questions because of that strength. I have such a strong and steeped like schooling in this way of thinking over here where I'm from. And yet I have seen beyond it and it include my, my seeing quote unquote, seeing beyond it includes it. Like I don't reject it. It's just, I see beyond it. I feel. And So I have an inner conflict because that voice, those voices and those beliefs that formed me as a child are still with me, even if I don't hold them the way I did. (laughs) So it was an interesting thing to try to think through. And yeah. Could you say say a bit more about what that community was? Yeah. 
I was going to say, I think it would be helpful to sort of paint the picture because I was raised in a, I'm sure you'll have heard of it because it's pretty active in England. Um, although it, it is different in these states, it's different in the states, but it's related. Uh, the Plymouth Brethren, are you familiar at all with them? And so I, I was raised in a community which we did not live in community the way a lot of the the ones in England do, but but by all other intents and purposes, we did. You know, we were not encouraged or permitted to vote or to um, marry outside of the denomination or to, like, going to college happened, but it wasn't, um, there was a lot of suspicion about that, you know. Um <clears throat> But yeah, perhaps most interestingly, like we we took communion every Sunday, which is unusual for a Protestant denomination. Um, but we didn't allow people who were were not Plymouth Brethren to receive it. And if you wanted to receive communion there, you could be under observation by the elders for years before they decide if you are really in the fold. Of- what does under observation <clears throat> mean? That feels... Yeah. So that's... It's where it gets interesting is that we had these things, observation and discipline and kind of like unusual for what you modern churches are like, I would say. Like a person would have to submit themselves to the authority of the elders of that church for observation to determine whether or not they truly believe and adhere to the teachings of not just the Bible, but what they believe is the only way to interpret the Bible, which is Plymouth Brethren doctrine. We didn't read any books, really religious books outside of that. We had our own bookstore, a Plymouth Brethren bookstore, where you could get just approved texts that you could read. And while it was not, while I wasn't living in a commune where I couldn't escape, literally, it might as well have been in some ways, I think, a commune because we were, I was so sheltered from everything else in certain ways. And there are exceptions to that, which I'm grateful for, but yeah. So I was raised in a high control, uh, very hierarchical uh, in, in the gender sense, very, very extremely. And so it was kind of a rigid place to be raised. And had both your parents always been brethren? My mom had been, and her her mom had been, I think. Um, her father was raised Pentecostal holiness, which is like snake handling, Southern, kind of very different than the Plymouth Brethren, extremely different. But he had an experience in his teens, I think, where he had a very spiritual experience and was felt that that was where he was led to go. And then my dad was raised Christian Missionary Alliance in Syria, where he grew up. And then when he came to the States, the man who sponsored him as a child, he was a sponsored child, for lack of a better term, as in Syria, because they were so poor. And there was a man who had sponsored him, and he met him when he came here, and he introduced them to the Plymouth Brethren community that, that I grew up in. So... How much was that kind of Syrian side of your identity live in your childhood or was it crowded out by the strength of that brethren culture? It was quite it was quite um alive and what was actually really beautiful about the Plymouth Brethren culture I was in was that it was extremely ethnically and racially diverse and included a lot of Arabs and black people and I <clears throat> my church was not 
um, a very homogenized place in that way. And so our culture was very much part of our lives. And my dad's brother and his family and his sister and his family all lived nearby and my grandmother. And so I was around a lot of Arabic family on a very frequent basis. And how much, I am, this is going to sound like cod psychology, but I assume this has come up in your talking therapies. How much do you connect your scrupulosity and the PTSD mm-hmm to that time or not? I know that's an impossible question. I know it is. It's a big one. And I am, I'm still curious about it, but I think I, I think I have a handle on it generally because that is the big question, right? Like does faith breed the um, feelings, the symptoms of something like that? Or does that breed an engagement with faith that is like that, you know? And, and, I can tell you what I know, which is that mental, I don't want to call it mental illness. Um, these sort of mental difficulties run in my family on my mom's side. So I think that I have some genetic or ancestral, whatever you want to call it, kind of tendency toward it. Um, and... I was raised in a high control, like, uh, very binary and and harsh, in some ways, religious culture. And I think they were a perfect match for each other. Um, They're, like, perfectly matched. And so I I think that it's both for me. That's my best guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so presumably you showed up as a fairly compliant child is that how it it showed up quite yes and um my mom still I've told I've talked to her about it you know and why it kind of gives me a little hmm. uh, you know but she will always say like oh you were just so compliant like if someone asks what I was like when I was a kid that's what she says first and that's what my dad says first and so I think that's very interesting and that is how it showed up you wanted to get it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that version of me is still with me. I am still her. Not entirely, of course, because I've been other versions since. But I, she comes with me through every transition and every decision <laughs> still. Yeah. So I'm learning to work with her, work with that. So what I want to do now is do what I sometimes call dropping the G-bomb. But I want to, because, which is all, which is hard generally, and it can be very disruptive. Uh, But because of what you said earlier about your therapist, I just wanted to check that asking about how the higher power was. Yeah. Your experience of that in your childhood, that you'd feel okay answering that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you believe in God? What, What was your sense of the presence was it very much perf- outward performance? Just unpack that a bit for me. So it's like thinking about an ex-boyfriend, kind of. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he did that. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I had, a, like, an interestingly dichotomous relationship going on. So there was this kind of rigid, um, scared, you know, like walking on eggshells side 
to my relationship to God. But there was also this other side, which I didn't really know how to make sense of. And I was a little scared of, if I'm honest, because I would have these experiences that I couldn't really explain. And that they happened in music sometimes. They happened in my dreams. They happened at night before I fell asleep. And I can explain more about that. But like, I couldn't explain them. And it felt like it felt like God, but I was, I felt like I was worried it was demonic. So I was like, I, so like, say more I, about what, what those experiences were. Yeah. So, you know, um, the best way I can put it is like visions and that came without warning and without permission. And so, and I would have these experiences and sort of be like, I don't know what, what they're even for. I don't even know what the takeaway is sometimes, you know, it's just like something happened and took over my field of consciousness or my field of awareness so much that I felt like I was somewhere else. And I felt like I was so worried that that was something untrustworthy or dangerous. And I never told anyone, anyone about it because I didn't, well, I felt terrified of what would happen because we were also a community of non, like we believed that there were no spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues and visions and dreams was not active and alive anymore because of where we were in the dispensational history of things. And so I was like, well, then something is deeply wrong with me <laughs> because I'm, ha but it felt like God. So it was such a conflict. I was like, I don't, this is terrifying, you know, kind of confusing. Yeah. yeah. So that's helpful that there were two things at play. Tell me a bit more about music. You said some of these experiences happened in music. Yeah. What's your mm -hmm. earliest kind of music memory as someone who's mm -hmm. devoted your life to this art form? Um, my earliest music memory is, like, a, as far as a vivid memory of, like, I remember this moment, really. Um, I have, like, flickers and flashes of things, but is um, being probably five, and I loved to read and I loved to play piano and I would climb up on there and play with one hand on the, with my right hand on the keyboard and on with the left hand, I'd be turning the pages of a book on the music stand of the piano. And, um, I would just kind of while away the hours like that sometimes. And that's, that, that was kind of how I, that was my relationship to it as a child, which was really, I mean, I think it saved my life probably in some ways. When did the idea that music might be the thing you were going to do emerge? I was 19. Wow, quite late. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even consider it as an option because I thought I would, well, I was going to do exactly what my mom did and get married at 18 and have kids and not work and not go to school. That was my plan and what I thought, that was kind of what I thought I would do. And then in high school, I was like, well... Maybe I'll maybe I'll go to school for something. I really wanted my uncle was in fashion and I wanted to be in fashion. And so I thought about going to the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. But then I decided, no, like I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go pursue music for a second. And that was when I was 19. I'm just gonna see. And it was like I had a I had a sense that I was called to it. And I had been raised in a church where women couldn't speak about spirituality or God in front of males over the age of 12 or 13, essentially, because it would be considered be preaching or teaching if they learned something from you. And so we, I, I was not permitted to sing in front of 
the church as a child, as a young, young person, because that would have been wrong. So like, I didn't even see it as an option, I think, until something kind of told me like, wait, I don't know, maybe you are called to go over here. And what was the draw? What was the thread that you were pulling on with music? What was, what was your heart leading you towards? Mm. Um, I think it was such an expression, an outlet for expression of so much angst and pent up pent up creative energy, pent up spiritual angst, you know, I had a lot of existential angst. Like I didn't realize that was the name for what I was thinking and feeling, but just a really worried, like really worried, really, really worried and concerned, you know, (laughs) like as a young person in my like high school years were just, I, I don't know. I have all these journals. I have the gift of having journals from probably from when I was 12 till about 25. And um, I've been reading through them the last year or two slowly, just picking a little bit at a time. And what strikes me is how anxious and sad and tormented they are. And sort of not all of it, but but so much of it and really heartbreaking words. Like I would say that, you know, um, when I was like 22, I gave a guy a foot rub because he asked me to give him a foot rub. And I went home and wrote in my journal that, you know, about it. And I was like, I'm, I'm such a whore. I'm such a slut. I think I should get up on a life-size cross until God purifies me of this flesh in my, you know, thorn in my flesh because I felt an attraction to this person and I was physical with them in that way. And, you know, I didn't kiss anyone until I was 26. I was like so petrified of everything to do with, yeah, the war. I don't know, just scared, worried. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so that was, that was my overall relationship with it all. But there were these experiences and music, like it led me into that feeling of connection, a feeling of stillness internally that I couldn't really get without it. It was like it went, it bypassed the mind and went into the body and into the realm of the unconscious as well. You know, that sort of under the undercurrent underneath all our actions, our behaviors, there's this undercurrent of the unconscious ocean of, of whatever is inside us. It's like the void, um, you know, and that could come out through music in a way that it had no other vent in, you know, had no other vent than that. And I think that probably healed a lot as I was living, as I was growing up in that. I probably could have sustained even more trauma from the experience had I not had that. Mm. And you became quite well known for singing um, worship songs, hymns, your own music, particularly kind of beloved for reworking beautiful old spirituals. What, how do you think about that time now and kind of what was going on in you and what people were connecting with? Because suddenly you had an audience. So the first time that I really felt like I'm, oh, this is happening, <laughs> was I went on tour with um, a band, uh, a guy named Matt Marr. And uh, he's well known in the Christian world for writing and also working with old old hymns, actually, and kind of making new versions of. And Lord, I Need You is his a good example of that in one of his songs. And 
I went on tour with him in 2008 and I could just feel how people were responding. You know, I was like burning CDs on my old laptop that didn't even stay standing up. I had to prop it up on something and it was like wires were coming out, but I was burning by hand my little EP I had made and um, selling them at such a rate that I was like spending the whole day, every day doing this and hand drawing all the covers. And it was like writers, uh, hand cramps. And just, I was like, this is like, I didn't think I was going to have this situation. I thought I was going to be like, I'll do 20 and then I'll have a couple days worth, you know, instead I'm selling 70 or 80 of them a night. So I'm having to make all these, (laughs) the guys in the band were helping me. It was like such a sweet, everyone was so excited for me. And I felt like, what's going on here? You know, I just, I don't even know. Like I, I didn't know, I didn't even know. I didn't expect that. I don't think. And Right away, I could tell that I was able, for some reason, it's like something about the vibration and timbre of my voice and the things I'm saying, it brings people to a place of like self-compassion and like release. And I'm like, uh, uh, I've always held that sacred, no matter what version of me I have been. And so the, the hymns and all of that, at the time when I, I made a record called Inheritance, which is still my most successful record by like 100 miles. And it's all hymns and two originals. And I think it's because if I had a guess as to why, I think it's because when I made it, I was tormented by the fact that my beliefs were shifting. I, my faith was changing. My identity as a certain type of believer was crumbling. And I was so scared because I was like, what does this mean? I didn't ask for this to happen. I didn't want to deconstruct anything. And yet here I am doing it. Oh my God, you know, and I made that record in that time. And it was because I could not write a worship song to save my life at the time because I was so conflicted about what do I think? What do I even believe about this? And so I thought, well, I could sing these songs that I have a relationship to because Plymouth Brethren, for all of the things that it might've left in my life that have made my life harder or more complicated, we sang, we were a singing community and we sang in four-part harmony and we sang all the time and I look back at that and I'm like that that is powerful and healing and medicinal and so like I hold that very sacred those hymns that we sang even though I don't believe some of the ideas some of them I don't believe them anymore however that music that sound was extremely healing. So I was clinging to that as a life raft at that time. And I think you can hear it in the music that I was going through a deep and rich experience trying to wrestle with these ideas. And so people resonated with that. And as I like traverse what's now, it's very interesting because I don't know what's, I don't know what's going to happen, but, um, but I'm so grateful that I have had that, that time and that chance to um, meet people in that way. We'll get to deconstruction because I think it will be a very familiar phrase to a lot of people and completely new to a bunch of other people. But before we get there, you converted to Catholicism and I would Mm -hmm. love to know what triggered it. Oh, yeah, I did when I was um, 24. And it was about two years of study and kind of figuring out what I thought about it and then going through the rite of initiation, which takes, you know, six to eight months or whatever. And so... Yeah, I had an experience with, 
I met a Catholic 18, 17 or 18 year old. I think I was probably uh, 21 at the time. And I was in a coffee shop, 21, 22. And, and I was in a coffee shop and this guy came up to me who looked to be about 16 years old. And he said, hi, you don't know me. My name is Dan. And I have seen you at several worship night things around town and really enjoyed it. And I was wondering if you'd like to come and sit with me and my friends over there and hang out. And I looked at them and I was like, I don't know why I'm saying this, but okay. And because I'm not, at the time, I was not really, I was a little bit guarded with people when I met them. And I didn't, I just felt this compulsion to lean in for some reason. And so they were Catholics and I was raised in a very anti-Catholic church, you know, very, very, the whore of Babylon and the revelation is a Pope and Catholic church is the dragon consuming the baby. I mean, it's just like, we were like, no, 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 anti. So I was just like fascinated when they were, I was asking them a million questions. They talked to me so late that they missed their curfew and got in trouble. (laughs) And like, I just was like, I want to know everything. What is this? And so I went to mass with him the next day, a morning mass at a nearby church. And he explained to me, you know, you're not Catholic. So you cross your arms and you receive a blessing And I went in there and there was a family in there that had a son who was an adult with Down syndrome. And he went up and received communion. And there was something about it that just broke me open. I was like, it's not about what you know. It's not about what you understand. There's something physical going on here. It was like an early version of my embodiment journey came to me through that experience where I was like, oh, Oh, like the sacraments are like a, are our mystical place. They are a mystical, but also physical. All of them have a physical aspect, the oil and the anointing of the sick and, you know, all that kind of thing. So I was just so drawn to these physical embodied spiritual moments and statements. And so that's what pulled me into that. And I look back at that and think, gosh, like I still resonate with all of that. I don't, <laughs> there's nothing in me that rejects that, that the earth, can be where the divine is met and encountered. And the Catholic church took me from a place of all mind into a more embodied version of faith than I had ever been part of. And that was what drew me to it. Yeah. Oh, any of these questions we could spend a whole hour on. So I'm having (laughs) to be very disciplined. Um, And ask about, and I don't want to say where you are now because you've been so wonderfully straightforward about you know, you said something about your literary agent saying changes your brand, <laughs> like the, yeah. the, 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 the journeying and the questing and the changing. It's not, you were there and now you're here right, and this is where right. you live. But right. for this moment, you have used the language of deconstruction and, uh, could you just say kind of what you mean by it and yes. ha- how you think it's often used for people who it would be completely mm-hmm. foreign to? So, Okay, my opinion on deconstruction is is very subjective. It's mine based on my experience. Um, a lot of people define, I think, deconstructing your faith as essentially more or less taking your beliefs and your ideas off the bookshelf and looking at them for a while to decide, do I still think this? Has my relationship to it changed? And that's all part of it. But for me, there was a deeper, more foundational change where I underwent kind of a core level shift in philosophically how I view the world, the universe, the soul, the body, nature, God. It's like I I experienced a complete taking apart of 
not just my beliefs, which are based on these deeper foundational kind of held knowings or, 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 or whatever foundational stuff, um, that changed. And so everything else changed because that changed. It wasn't like, I just was like, you know, I'm not, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't totally intellectual. That was partly intellectual. Absolutely. Do I have intellectual objections to certain things? Absolutely. But what deeply happened underneath that was a shift in like my view of the big things and how I look at them, how I think about them. This is a really horrible question, but would you, how would you narrate how you look at the big things now? <laughs> I'm um, so sorry. <laughs> why? No, no. I don't. Yeah, I would like you to, as your homework, unpack why you're sorry for asking me that. <laughs> um, Feel, yeah. Because it feels like it's one of those things that might be beyond many of these things. That's why anything that's sacred is... Sure. It's not easily nettable in a nice, easy sentence. I hear you. But here's the thing. I have accepted that. And I am a lay student of the Tantra world. Lay student. I'm not like an academic level studier of that. But one thing that I love about it is that they teach about this, about words and trying to describe the sacred. And that while words are inherently not capable of describing it because they inherently sort of create opposites. Like it's only the moon because it's not the sun and it's not the sky and it's not, it's this. There's a certain duality to language that is unavoidable and therefore it cannot fully encapsulate what is beyond duality. That's how, that's how, that's why it's hard to put it into words because you can't put it into words because the minute you do, you, you create sort of a, a prism that refracts the light into a rainbow. The pure light is no, now seen in color because of your words. So the thing that's special is because it cannot put it into words, it's like um, we refract the light into color, which makes it something we can experience because, because we're able to say something about it, even if it's not perfect. So I love talking about it, but yeah. Um, I think I just know that I am part of nature. I'm not above it. I came from it. And because that's true, um, I am finite and I am, you know, earthly and I am decomposing already <laughs> and I will die. And what changed is that I now see that all of the kind of um, stories and beliefs and structures and institutions that we build, they're not bad, but they're not the whole picture and they are not as objective as we believe. And I think that's what changed for me. I, I felt so small all of a sudden when I started to come into touch with this feeling like I'm an ant on an anthill on a planet that is hurtling through the galaxy that is one of millions of galaxies. What do I know? What the hell do I know? I don't know anything. And it felt like freedom because my trap is the mind. It's prison. I have, I have to have one to be here, to live here and talk to you, you know, like that's necessary. And I love my mind. I don't hate my mind. I'm not like anti-mind now, but I just know 
that all this thinking about what's out there and what's making all this go and believing things about it and building churches based on it is it's fine. It's not wrong. It's just not the whole thing. Like there's something deeper than that underneath it. And it's in everyone and in everything. And that has, that is what changed is that I believe that God is in a blade of grass, just like God is in me. And I, I was coached away from that type of thinking, of course, in where I was brought up and warned of the dangers of that. And it has only healed me and enriched my life and enriched my life. And that includes Jesus and the cross and Christianity and everything that I was raised to believe. And I think really learning not to reject it, but instead to embrace all, you know, um, Hmm. that's how I view it now. Thank you. That's very beautiful. When you, and there's been a sort of powerful vulnerability about your public voice for a lot of your journey, I think, and it's probably partly why you're very beloved by people who love, love your music as well. But when you started talking more openly about this process for you, maybe particularly when you kind of announced, um, I think you're very careful with your words about not currently being a practicing Christian rather than I am not a Christian or whatever, you know, whatever, how, how was the reaction and how did you navigate that? Um, I think a lot of people were not shocked. (laughs) (laughs) So there was not as much blowback as you would imagine, because by that time I had been slowly sort of steadily, I think, scaring people who felt (laughs) you know, like very concerned about my beliefs changing because they could feel, I think, the shift going on. I was never overt about certain things, but I did get, you know, in 2014, I got really political in a way I had not prior to that. And it was because Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson here. And there was something about that, you know, one in a long and unending string of events like that that are not newsworthy to people, quote unquote, you know, I recognize that, but that was the one, for whatever reason, that opened my eyes to the situation in my country and in the world. Um, so when that happened, I started to speak up about that, and that started to sort of shake certain people off and scare some people away. And then I was sort of being more vocally compassionate about LGBTQ stuff and saying happy pride, and that was like a big deal. That was probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest was when I said that the first time online. So by the time I got to the, to, to the I'm not a practicing Christian thing, I think a lot of people were like, yeah, we know, <laughs> you know? And the ones that stayed behind, overwhelmingly the majority were so supportive and understanding, even if they don't currently share what, you know, the same perspective shift. Um, but there were obviously the people who are making it their business to... Um, to just to react, to be upset. And I just felt like I felt compassion. I feel compassion for that because I get it. I I know. <laughs> um, and it's okay. That's their journey. And like, I'm on mine, you know? And I think that that has died really hard for me, but it's, but it's dying. <laughs> that people pleasing kind of worry, um, but yeah. it's dying. So So I am fascinated by tribes and the way we 
So a guy called John Yates, who wrote a book called Fractured in the UK, talks about PLM, which is people like me syndrome. And this sort of baked in instinct in us to feel more comfortable with people like ourselves, to, to receive more warmly messages from people like ourselves. And I think it's probably universal. I, as a Christian, might just call it sin. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And it's one of the things that I see Jesus like actively calling us out of by being quite like actively disruptive around tribalism. But that instinct in us um, to feel antagonism or tension or um, fear around people who believe and belong and behave differently from ourselves is so baked in. And we live in a world that's like continually forming us further into it. And we have to find the practices that help us resist it. And you've been in a lot of different tribes. You know, you were a Plymouth Brethren when that was an unusual thing in the world and you mm-hmm. had to navigate the world as that. And then you were a Catholic in, uh, particularly in the Christian music scene, in which there weren't many Catholics. And you mm-hmm. are uh, someone who has traversed different places. What have you learned? about what helps us continue to see each other as fully human beyond and across our tribes. Or even I think sometimes this is the hardest, someone who used to be in our tribe and we feel like has rejected it. Hmm. I think... It's like this one is harder than the rest for some reason to describe the way that I view this. But I'll just say, I think I've come to such a sense of the deeply and intricately and unavoidable, unavoidably woven together strands between me and you and everybody who disagrees with everything I think. I just know how connected we are. I understand it. I'm like, I, I'm, I feel a sense of this web with humanity such that when a strand is tugged on the other side of the world, sometimes I feel that, you know, I I believe that we're so connected in ways that I'll never really understand. And so tribes are a way, I think, that we can feel that feeling. But I'm learning to feel it without needing a tribe. And I mean, I, I believe in villages. I believe in that. I'm not saying I actually have more of that than I have in a long time now. And with my friends, with chosen family and such, you know, people who I commune around these ideas with, um, we need each other. And um, we're so connected that I guess when, when I receive blowback from, especially from Plymouth Brethren people still that will sometimes find me and send me a letter or, you know, whatever. I'm just like, I just, I don't know if this is dismissive. I hope not. But like, it doesn't matter that you feel this way. I'm still connected to you as much as I ever was. Even if you don't feel it, I feel it. I feel it. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to account for that. I've had that experience several times in some very visceral ways where someone is coming at me with this energy of fear and anxiety and stress about what I think and how it's changed. And what my heart feels is just like, like, I love you. I'm sorry. I get it. I really do. I understand. I have been there. I have felt that. I have said that to someone. I have done this and I understand. And I don't expect you to be any different. And I don't expect you to see it. 
And it's not because I'm above you or because I'm smarter or because I'm more in touch with God than you. I don't, that's not my job to know, you know, or to think about like, well, how am I, am I hearing the real truth? And they're not, it doesn't, it's not up to me to know that, but I just feel like I feel love for that. And I'm grateful to be there because I have this experience a lot. (laughs) So, you know. Audrey Assad, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. You're welcome. It's such a pleasure. So I have been um, listening back and pondering to that conversation that I had with Audrey. And uh, the first thing that struck me is she said, oh, I didn't come up with very many sacred things. And then listed five. And... um, I think for a lot of our, a lot of my guests, uh, getting to one or two is is really quite difficult, and I think that that speaks to um, just the amount of time that she spent in reflection about her beliefs and her life and and how she wants to orient herself. Um, she said something about sacred values that they're the things that she um, goes back to when she needs clarity, uh, when she needs, when she needs to make a decision. So, uh, yeah, something like the, the things that she consults when she needs clarity. And it really chimes with the way I'm increasingly thinking about this evolving concept of what our sacred values are and what the sacred means to us is, and it's all kind of orientation and geographical metaphors that come to mind of, things that are a compass for our life that we check in, you know, we're, we're, we're wandering, uh, we're wandering in this world and, um, we, we, we can sort of get a bit lost, but we check our compass. And if we know what, what our true North is, if we know where we're headed, if we know what the values we want to live by are, then we can, um, reorient ourselves to them. Um, and, uh, they can be a kind of map. They can be, um, yeah, th- things that keep us on the path on which we want to be. Things that um, the other way I sometimes think about them is, you know, what would what would you want someone to say about you, or say about your life on your deathbed or at your funeral? What was your life defined by? I want I want someone to say, you know, Elizabeth's life was so clearly defined by her relationships because that's my primary kind of guiding sacred value. Um, I wonder what yours are. I'd love uh, to hear more. I want to pause on what Audrey said about scrupulosity and OCD because it's not a topic we've covered on the podcast before. I actually don't think it's a particularly well-known condition, difficulty, challenge. Um, And I'm going to point you actually to something that the reason I I know, know about it is from a very good piece by a woman called Susanna Black, who is one of the editors at Plough Magazine. And um, Susanna writes about a later in life conversion and how that connected with OCD. So I think both with Audrey and Susanna, there's particularly interesting things about how scrupulosity, um, which is really, I think, um, these mental loops that are very fearful and very anxious about doing things right and getting things right, 
can interact in very difficult ways um, with religious belief in particular. The more I think about it, I I think um, it could show up in all kinds of things, in in activities around social justice, um, uh, in people's politics, that kind of um, uh, tendency or temperament. And uh, I have found thinking and reading about it very interesting and very thought-provoking because of this idea that we have, I think that there are good ideas or bad ideas or liberating ideas and um, constraining ideas because there's another layer and it's about how it interacts with our own temperament and tendencies. And Audrey had had real kind of honesty and self-awareness of that, you know, that the mix of a very high control, hierarchical, um, you know, she was using language like observation and discipline, uh, compliance. When you have that tendency towards conscientiousness in the big five personality test, um, or if you have something more extreme like scrupulosity, that can be a very, very difficult mix to handle. Um, whereas for someone like me, who doesn't have especially high conscientiousness, um, doesn't have a, a, a shame trigger that is very sensitive at all. Um, ideas, for example, within my faith that feel to me obviously liberatory, you know, obviously life-giving, the same thing can be heard really differently in a different person, can land really differently in a different person. And for anyone communicating ideas, whether they're political or philosophical or religious, just that awareness of of the different ways they can land and the different ways people can hear them, I think, is so helpful. The more I do this project, people always say, you know, the way to peace building, the way to engage with our differences is to acknowledge how much we all have in common. And I would give quite a strong yes, but to that because we do have loads of things in common and I always want to start with those, but also what it shows me is just how different we are, how how particular every person is. And often it's in understanding that particularity of those differences and dignifying those differences that um, it's easier to connect with each other. I, um, I really loved that Audrey, so many people who do this thing of de- deconstructing publicly, which is the kind of current way lots of people are talking about moving away from certainly the, um, I hate all the language. There's no good language. I, I, I even have trouble with the with the word fundamentalist, but moving away from um, beliefs that they'd received or moving away from um, faith communities that they had previously been part of or, not believing the things they used to believe do seem to have come from quite um, intense (laughs) places. I think probably if you're raised a liberal Anglican, you don't do so much deconstructing. If you, you know, when I, when I had mine and I had a real major, I became a Christian later, a bit later in my teens, I then became an atheist. And at the time the word deconstruction wasn't used. It was just like a crisis of faith, a dark night of the soul, um, looking back now, I understand why that language, because it did feel like my house was falling in on itself. You know, the place I'd built my home, the foundations were not at all solid and I was falling through the floor. Um, 
but uh yeah it seems it seems that deconstructing often is from these quite intense backgrounds i'm interested in it as a phenomenon and where it's helpful and where it's not um but the thing i really loved about audrey is it's very easy when you've experienced pain in a community or um changed your mind about a set of beliefs to carry a lot of pain about it and that pain can present in in bitterness or in anger and honestly i think probably those things are can be healthy too in in seasons um but that audrey audrey's landed in this beautiful place where she's so careful to name what was good about her childhood faith community that she's so careful to say it's a place that was beautifully diverse it's a place where we sang you know she can name what she found difficult and name what the gifts that it gave her too and there's just a sort of beautiful um maturity and a steadiness and a um she's been very she's just been very careful not to descend having left one tribe not to descend into just a different type of tribalism which is very easy for all of us to do as we change our minds on things um i loved her what she was saying about having these visions and encounters with the divine and i've been reading maslow abraham maslow recently and um when he talks about peak experiences he has this thing where he peak experience is now usually used now in this sort of secularized way of like you know when you do something very fulfilling um but in his writings it's clear he also thinks kind of mystical unselfing type experiences are also part of those peak experiences these ecstatic experiences and um his argument that is that sort of religion accrues around those experiences and then kills them basically that we have these he was an atheist so he wouldn't necessarily call them encounters with the divine but they sound like encounters to, with the divine to me frankly um but then they're tamed by institutions and structures and um the first thing is sort of true religion in his sense and the second thing is is false religion. And as Audrey was talking, you could hear, no, she doesn't use true or false religion, but she just talk about these two very separate things. These, these intense ecstatic experiences and then the structures and the stuff that she was receiving at church. And it's those two things. And I think often we feel like those two things can't cohabit and we're temperamentally, temperamentally drawn more to one than, than the other. With someone who actually quite likes structure and rigor and grounding things, we might be drawn more to institutional religion or indeed um, other forms of kind of structuring ideas and beliefs and principles. And if we're someone who, and not everyone experiences them, if someone who does have these ecstatic experiences, um, then we can chase after those and reject any structure around them, any accountability. Um, and we see that in the excesses, I think, of both the religious ecstatic forms and in um some of the least regulated areas of what's happening around psychedelics at the moment. Um, and those things are very, very individualized and very private and and wild. I think as Audrey was talking, I realized something about myself, which is I value the places where I can hold those two things together. I really value, I sort of lean, my my faith expression is sort of, I don't know what it is, honestly, but it at least has a big dollop of a kind of charismatic Pentecostal Christianity in it. And I I like the fact that I can have those ecstatic emotional experiences, but have them in a container of ritual and community and accountability 
I had a very funny thing the other day where I went to St. Paul's Cathedral for a lunchtime service with someone who is a, a friend and also a professional contact. And we were going to be having a professional meeting. And this friend has got, um, has kind of had a re- renewal in interest in their life in um, Christianity, essentially. So we sat next to other, uh, sat next to other. as soon as we sat down, I realised it's really intimate to go to a service with someone Um like, when are you silent? When are you chatting? You're sitting really close to someone. We were in St. Paul's Cathedral under this giant dome. You know, this sociologically, it's just fascinating. Immediately my brain went, well, the white marble, it's so imperial and the gold, but isn't beauty important? Like the low church part of me and the high church part of me at war in my mind. And then throughout this very beautiful, but very austere, you know, ritualized service, I felt my hands shaking and I felt this sort of strong bodily experience of the love of God. And I felt really out of place and a bit embarrassed in some ways, but also it kind of summarized where I feel most aligned when I am able to have that slightly more intense ecstatic experience um, within within a container. And the container of this very old, very tested um uh service sorry that's a big segue into me um i hope it's relevant and we'll just land with um yeah audrey's kind of rigorous non-tribal response to people who don't agree with her i think the the idea that someone could write you a letter that carries a lot of pain and anger because we do often feel betrayed when people who we had felt tribally aligned with change their mind it's really easy to feel angry with them and to for us to feel a bit abandoned um and when she receives those kind of responses when she saw that she said this lovely thing she went you know I know I know but we're still connected and um that stayed with me as just a beautiful posture to try and inhabit in ourselves whoever the people are who we feel are outside our tribe and who might be angry with us or who we feel angry with. You have been listening to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. This conversation was with Audrey Assad. You can find about her music and you can also find a transcript for every episode via the show notes. It should link. It's not there absolutely immediately when the show goes live because we have to connect up a few things at the back end. But there will always be a transcript available for those of you who want to quote things and share them on social media, perhaps for people who just find that helps with their accessibility or who want to look up what someone said. It's all there. Our production team are Daniel Turner, Lizzie Harvey and Drew Hawley. The music is by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey and The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos. Speak to you next time.